HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, I'm joined by two inspiring guests whose life work is focused on using the power of agriculture and food for positive transformation. They also happen to capture the growing presence of BIPOC leaders in the Midwestern ag space. I meet Yusef Benrella, chef and co-founder of Trade Roots Farm in Madison, Wisconsin. Yusef is a teacher and what I would describe as a bit of an activist for food sovereignty and food justice, uplifting BIPOC voices in everything that he does. But first, I'd like to welcome Malcolm Evans to the program. Malcolm is the Director of Farming at Urban's Grower Collective in Chicago. So, Malcolm, uh, I want to start where um, I think, you know, your spark for gardening and agriculture begun. Where did you first start to uh, get outside and and garden? Well, I first got outside and started gardening that was in my neighborhood, Cabrini Green. So my name, Malcolm Evans, like she said, director of farm with Urban Girls Collective. But I pretty much started gardening in my neighborhood that's called Cabrini Green. I met uh, Erica Allen, one of the CEOs of Urban Girls Collectives, when I was nine years old in Cabrini Green. And Cabrini Green is you know, a neighborhood CHA land, Chicago Housing Authority. So it's a building that me and my family was living in at that time. And Cabrini got this history about violence and everything. So, you know, that's a part of Cabrini Green. And one day me and my brothers was hanging around our building because, you know, we always used to just hang around our building because we wasn't really like going anywhere else in Cabrini Green or we really didn't know nobody in Cabrini Green due to some violence and things like that. And one day we um 
went across the street to this old basketball court and it'd been banned for many, many years. And we met th these two amazing people and they was talking to us about like gardening. We finna go start a community garden and you guys welcome to come over there and be involved. And it was Erica Allen and her dad, Will Allen. So, you know, sure enough, me and my brothers, we was just hanging in there, got something to eat at that date. We're just talking to them and just, you know, I'm nine years old. One of my other brothers, you know, 13. We just real young. A lot of our friends, we just, you know, just wanted to see what was going on. We were just curious. And mm -hmm. when they uh, when they talked to us about what they finna do, I think for me at that time, you know, I was real like shocked and kind of like not even like, I don't want to say scared, but like more like, like trauma. I was dealing with so much trauma and was like afraid in different ways and didn't really understand what they was doing and didn't understand them. But I just kept on going over there every time they was like installing the garden. I made that a place for me to just, you know, go over there and just be over there. But I didn't really talk to nobody for a few years, didn't really do nothing. I was just like showing up and just staring. Mm -hmm. How did you feel the first time that you saw the garden in action? Like when I first see the garden in action, you know, I, I look, I, I first look like, like, what is this? Like what they doing? Like, I know I see his food, but you know, I grew up going grocery shopping with my uh, mom. So for me, I really thought everything really came from a grocery store. You're not alone. A lot of people do <laughs> think everything comes to the grocery store. You know, at that time, I didn't really know anything about like food or like vegetables or nothing up in uh, school. Or I didn't really know, got it taught at home. I was just going with my mom to go get stuff to feed the family. And when I just saw, you know, stuff getting put in the ground and me just still not being able to, like, open up, just, like, change my whole lifestyle and being able to, you know, like, and the, the way where the garden was getting built that is pretty much, like, not downtown or Chicago, but it's kind of, like, in a neighborhood close by downtown and, I remember like walking past white people and, you know, people that's not color and they're like grab their purse and they'll just look at us funny and, you know, because they always thought we was coming in like to mess with stuff or rob them and do things like that. But, you know, for us, it was just a part of what we was going to hang out at because it was places that we could go play video games and do stuff like that. So when Erica Allen, you know, started the um, Chicago office and started a project at Grant Park, right across the street from the Buckethead Fountain. Like, that made me even more comfortable to even come downtown because that was another place that I used to go to to, like, do farming and learn more about farming at the Grand Park Farm. So let, let me just uh, kind of put this in a little bit of context. So you started, um, at, you know, and you met, I believe, is it uh, um, Erica and Laura, Laura out at the community garden, and then they started a new project then um, as well with gardening and farming further into downtown. Is that correct? Okay, awesome. Um, you know, it's it's really inspiring to hear how uh, farming, gardening, being outside with nature has, um, you know, really had an impact on you. And it sounds like it's changed kind of like your life direction. What is special to you about gardening and agriculture um, that has had that kind of impact to really, you know, impact your, your life and, and where you want to go with it? What is special about gardening, agriculture, the impact on me and my life is really, you know, for one, food. Just understanding, like, food, 
where food come from now and being able to like do it myself, but also, you know, just being able to like train and teach other folks about it. So we all don't grow up or folks don't grow up like me just thinking, you know, the next generation really just thinking like, you know, stuff come from the grocery store or like, you know, stuff grown a certain type of way. And like, it's, it's all being brought in from California or brought in from all across the world. And really, you know, I'm just doing it because I love to like see folks get real excited about vegetables and fruit and things that they doing here, right here in the city of Chicago, because I was once a person that didn't believe that you could do this, even though I know like my family, my insects, and they all was doing this down south. But like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. I ain't understand until like I met these two amazing peoples and kind of just took off with it and trusted them, trusting the mission and believing them and started just like taking it to the next level and like I remember like I never left the garden like I like used to just go over there go to the garden because at that time I also was like building I felt like I was building a special type of relationship being beyond the food part but really just meeting people trusting people different color people you know and just like looking at them as role models because how I grew up with so much trauma and like not being treated a certain type of way and being looked at different really just changed my life about like farming and total and like how I know that like the work that we doing as Urban Grudge Collective, but also like just having just having folks just like being able to like come in a garden and like be theyself. That was the, that was my other thing about like I could come to the farm and just be myself and open up. That's awesome. I mean, you know, the the fact that you've managed to have a place that turned into, uh, you know, a real sanctuary, it sounds like, a safe space, a place where you could build relationships and friendships, um, you know, feel that you could express yourself and be yourself without judgment, uh, really, I think, shows the power of community and of agriculture and getting outside. Um, you know, I, I want to ask a little bit about more about kind of your path to where you are now. But before I do, I, I want to also ask about um, literally that role of food that you were talking about um, and um, whether or not you ever brought some of the vegetables and other things that were grown to back home. And, and if that changed maybe how you were eating on a daily basis in, in your house. Sure. Yes. Like the food, the the food that I was uh, growing in the garden at that time, I always took vegetables home because my mom and my grandma was cooking and teaching me how to cook. So, you know, I always take cherry tomatoes home. They was the sweetest tomatoes I probably ever tasted in my life. Collard greens, you know, we grew we grew up cooking Sunday dinners and grew up on greens and things like that, mustards and turnips. So just introducing like fresh vegetables to my family was like an out open to them, but also to me. And the most touching piece about it was I was growing it and learning it right across the street from the building that I was living in. Now I'm up in this building and I'm taking vegetables home, but I'm also feeding the folks in the building too. So everybody getting connected to it. Now everybody in the building coming over to the garden for you know, for the farm stand, but also to get a community plot because it was like you know, tell a friend, tell a friend type thing that we like to use. Yeah, and and it, and it opened folks up, but it also like changed the way that we cook and how we use certain things because now it's more fresher, and now I'm bringing more things home to the family that we used to get from the grocery store. 
and pay money for stuff that we barely even had. But now I'm able to go over here, put a seed in the ground, water it, harvest it, and take it home and introduce it to my mom and my grandma. And now they real excited about it. And now our family talking more about like the culture of farming and how it started and like more, you know, the stories are like, where it came from and like, you know, some of your family members did this. So I'm getting more excited and more like dope into this type of work because I'm opening up different pathways. I love it. And, uh, you know, it's it's clear how passionate you are about it. Uh, we're speaking today with Malcolm Evans, the director of farming at the Urban Growers Collective in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Malcolm, um, I want to ask, I mean, you know, you've been farming since you were, or excuse me, at least gardening since you were nine years old. Uh, you know, you've very well articulated the, the impact that those early years had on you and your passion for gardening, agriculture, food and farming. Uh, you know, now you're the director of farming for the Urban Growers Collective in Chicago. How did you get from point A to point B, a nine-year-old kid in the neighborhood uh, hanging out in the garden to actually being the director of, of farming for, um, you know, an, an urban, um, you know, agriculture organization? <laughs> yes, that's a great question. I love that question, how you just broke it down. How I, how did I get from just that little boy to becoming a director of farming here with Urban Girls Collective, really, I'm going to just keep it real as I could, honest as I could. For me, really, it's just, you know, just having a passion for something and being consistent. And, like, I remember just telling Erica I wanted to be a farmer at a young age. I remember her taking me to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, seeing her dad work. So, and I, I think, and a part of that really was, you know, trusting her, meeting Laura Sims. A white person and, and separate her into my life and trusting these folks and these folks like going through the challenges that I was going through outside of farming and just being connected to me but me also just having passion about something and just creating a skill that I felt like was taken from me or I never even thought that this is something that I'll be interested in and really and just Again, just being consistent and learning and paying attention and really observing and not even knowing that, oh, this is something that I can take to the next level. And I remember just, you know, just farming, just playing in the garden, playing in the dirt, but always had like a positive attitude and always used to ask for more, always want to learn more. And now me here at Urban Girls Collector, being a farm director, I like to always tell people like, you know, I'm no, I'm a farmer. And it took me a few years to even say I'm a farmer because, you know, you got to learn how to, you got to be a gardener. You got to, you know, you got to kind of like play in there first before you even can say I'm a farmer. And now I can say I'm a farmer because I clearly know that I love to grow vegetables. I love food, but also I really know what I'm doing. And I learned all this work that I do, hands-on training. It's just paying attention to amazing people. And now my big thing is at a director of farming is really just continue to grow thousands and thousands of organic food, but also train the next generation, work with mm -hmm. the youth, get the next generation to really understand that there's more things in life than what we think in our face or on our plate at that time. If you really like put your mind to something, but also, you know, have some guidance. 
I had a lot of guidance and I had a lot of people in my life that cared about me more than just my mom, my dad, my grandma. And that kind of like helped me as a black man, black little boy from Cabrini Green who was dealing with trauma, took it to the next level to become a director of farming. And that's why I'm the director of farming and farmer chief because I love to do what I do and I really have a passion about it. And I really like serious about my work and want to see the organization continue to do amazing things, work with the youth, train and get folks caught up and change the world when it comes to food. That's that's amazing. I you know, you we've talked so much about your you know, your passion, your experience, um, and your role at uh the Urban Garden Collective, but we haven't really talked about the the underlying mission of the Urban Growers Collective. Um can we can you speak to that just briefly uh before we let you go? Um tell us a little bit about the the work and the mission of the Urban Growers Collective and how your role as director of farming fits into that larger objective. I think the mission for Urban Growers Collective is continue to like, you know, address racism and all type of issues with herb with the tool of urban farming. Or like being able to like address those things by like doing the work that we doing and also but also with like farming and bringing that into the world and letting folks know where food come from and continue to like train and get folks familiar with what's going on and let folks have a space to like be they self in the healing piece. We can't never forget about the healing piece because like the work that I do and the work that Urban Girls Collective do is healing. It's healing. That's that's incredible. Um, you know, I think you really have captured um, the power of uh, agriculture and the power of food, that it really is something that can, you know, break down barriers, bring people together, um, change lives, inspire. Uh, and you certainly have inspired me, Malcolm, and I'm sure that our audience will feel the same way. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on this program. And we really are looking forward to seeing what you do next as you continue on your mission to change lives through food and agriculture. Thank you, for sure. And I, because the work that I do, you know, I like Erica speak on it a lot because Erica, more than just the co-founder, CEO, she a mentor to me. She's somebody who I've been knowing for a long time, but we all feel like food should be a human rights. Like folks should be able to like understand food, grow food, you know, and be connected to delicious food. Because, you know, we we all kind of grew up eating with fast food around and not knowing. So, you know, that's me, Malcolm Evans, you know, director of farming, farmer chief of Urban Grudge Collector. Thank you for having me on here. I continue to do this work, serve the community the best way I could, and always keep it real and never, you know, false it out, but be me. And you being you is obviously having a fantastic impact there in the community in Chicago. Thank you again, Malcolm. Thank you. It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, I'll be joined by our next guest, Yusef Benrella, chef and co-founder of Trade Roots Farms in Madison, Wisconsin. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Culture and Flavor is a new series from Heritage Radio Network that's all about food and culture centered in Black and Indigenous foodways. Hosted by myself, Zella Palmer, right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. I am a writer, professor, filmmaker, culinary historian, mom, cook, and grounded in my benevolent ancestors' legacies. I'm so excited, y'all, to share with you highly vibrational conversations with some well-known and unsung heroes in the culinary world friends who have become family from all over the world. Breaking bread is an art, and on Culture and Flavor, we are painting murals. I'm the child that know all the history of everybody's household. <laughs> Good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> I know, because they talk about it now. My cousins and them, girl, you know everything about everybody. I say, I sure do. <laughs> I need to put this on tape recorder. <laughs> Each episode, we'll hear from cultural bearers, chefs, farmers, scholars, barbecue pitmasters, and more. Where there is flavor, there is history. I'm excited for him, you know, his vision, you know, just as a, as a black man coming from the 1940s in the South uh, to see his vision be able to be um, acknowledged in such a way. And that's huge for me, you know, as a, as a son to be able to give him that moment. Join me on Culture and Flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise dancing, cooking, conjuring, and inspiring your culinary journey. Subscribe to Culture and Flavor wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. This hour, I'm joined by two guests who are BIPOC leaders in agriculture and food. Earlier, I spoke with Malcolm Evans, Director of Farming at Urban Growers Collective in Chicago. Now, I want to welcome Yusef Benrella, chef and co-founder of Trade Roots Farms in Madison, Wisconsin. You do so many things. Um, you wear a, a number of different hats, all kind of, you know, uh, related in one way, shape, or form to food and agriculture. Um, what got you interested in this space? As you know, I'm a lifelong Madisonian. I'm a chef, and I've been a chef for 30 years or so. And at a certain point in my culinary career, I just was, you know, wanting to learn more about the foods that we were using in our restaurants. And I started attending various vegetable tastings, working in partnership with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, also working for the last several years with different 
Native American tribes and forming uh, partnerships with indigenous chefs and just rediscovering, you know, the old taste, the taste of uh, really delicious farm fresh foods and just rediscovering heirloom varieties has really been a exciting evolution as a chef. So I, you know, I know that you're interested in, in social justice and you've, you know, you've been an activist, you know, pretty much, you know, most, if not all of your life, how do you see, um, you know, bringing back these, you know, heirloom vegetables and, and engaging in growing your own food? How does that connect to, you know, your sort of definition of social justice? Well, I feel like food sovereignty is um, a huge important factor in our survival as black and brown people. We have to be able to rely on ourselves to be able to feed ourselves traditional, culturally relevant foods, to feed our communities and families those culturally relevant foods that have kept us healthy and in balance for millennia. And then getting away from that and to these forced colonial diets is led to a litany of health issues. We have diabetes at way higher rates. We have uh, early onset Alzheimer's at way higher rates in both African and indigenous communities. And then we also, in the places that we live, we don't always have access to health and nu- healthy and nutritious food. Mm-hmm. So the importance of getting back to growing our own foods and reclaiming our ancestral foodways is essentially for uh, for us to be able to survive into the future and to be healthy. So I would suspect that that, that view, that commitment, uh, is what led you to Trade Roots Farms. Tell me about what brought you to being a co-founder of, of that organization. Well, originally, uh, Trade Roots was started as a culinary collective with the focus and goal of raising money to go to West Africa after we'd done some genealogical research Devin Hamilton and myself, another chef, um, he's a chef of grilling for the people in Los Angeles. And we started that with uh, Devin Hamilton Candy Flowers to raise money to go to West Africa. And we did pop-ups. We were selling plates at Badger Rock Neighborhood Center for $10 a plate. We did um, some small events to, you know, essentially raise $12,000. It was like a year and a half long process to get that money up. But once we had the seed planted that we were going to go and that we knew that we were going to go to ancestral homelands, um, our genetic ancestral homelands, Mm -hmm. the time flew by really quickly. But, you know, you can figure 1,000 or 1,200 plates basically it took to get us to Africa. And we made it. In 2019, we went to West Africa with chef, author, culinary historian Michael Twitty. Michael Twitty's author of the cooking gene. Also, he has a book called Rice, and um, Kosher Soul is his latest book that he just published last year. And that was a life-changing experience. Um, As I said, we went to Benin and Togo, and we were welcomed back into the kingdoms of both of those lands. Wow. How long were you there? Uh, We were there for 16 days, Mm. including travel time. So really 15 days in Africa. But um, it was a, we went with several other chefs and culinarians, historians, 
and farmers and it was uh it was a really amazing experience just being able to you know touch down on the ground where you know my ancestral blood hasn't been for several hundred years and my genealogy traces back to the late 1600s early 1700s for my family in the United States oh wow and then you know being there being in that space and seeing all the beautiful farms and all the beautiful farmers and all the um our you know stolen agricultural practices um relearning some of those being able to come mm -hmm. back and implement those was uh was the crucial next step so after we had right. raised money we got to africa you know i think it set both devon and our respective turfs if you will mine being in <laughs> wisconsin and him being in la on a path to you know, reconnecting with our ancestral foods and growing those ancestral foods and also teaching and educating our community about the, the um, health benefits and also the mental health benefits of having those connections. Sure. I mean, the work that you're doing is incredibly important and, and I feel like more relevant than ever. Um, and uh, in some of our previous conversations, because we have had an opportunity to, to chat, um, I, I know that part of, or at least my, my understanding from our previous conversations, is that um, one of the things you wanted to try to achieve was to get more land access and growing space, and um, get you know more uh, more of an, an inclusive um, you know group of uh, you know people actually engage in agriculture. Is that right? That is correct. So the last, uh, like since 2021, I started in partnership with Rooted, uh, largely as a solo project, started a Afro-Indigenous garden at the state capitol here in Madison. Mm -hmm. And it's the first one that I know of in Wisconsin history. But, you know, I grew, uh, I partnered with some Indigenous folks and got some corn seeds that we planted there and then we also planted collard greens and okra and garden eggs and a lot of different other afro-diasporic vegetables mm -hmm. and then in 2022 we partnered with Hmong growers who um, we have a large Hmong community in Wisconsin and yes. um, they have a rich agricultural background and to celebrate you know and make it more of a BIPOC space we partnered with a couple other organizations. We partnered with Urban Triage Agriculture mm -hmm. and then partnered with uh, Hmong farmer New Tao to grow some um, traditional Hmong medicines. So we grew like elephant's ear. We grew lemongrass. Oh, wow. We also grew collard greens and okra and um, a couple varieties of indigenous corn again this year mm. or last year. And then so this year we're going to continue that. We're going to... It'll be a true BIPOC garden at our state capitol. And the produce that we, that accumulates at that garden space is free for people to take if they'd like it. Um, we also, we donate lots of the produce to different community centers like Badger Rock Neighborhood Center um, and like mm -hmm. Kennedy Heights. So we make sure that gets the communities. Um, we'll also be doing a, another BIPOC at BIPOC garden space at Allen Centennial, where we'll be growing an African diaspora garden, an indigenous garden, and a Hmong medicine garden. And Allison, Allen Centennial Garden is um, located at the University of Wisconsin. 
So in partnership with UW. Um, again, so uh, getting space, getting land access, creating partnerships is some of the work that we've been really focused on. Um, and then just increasing the visibility of these small scale urban agricultural projects so mm -hmm. that people in the community are able to see that they may not have land, but even in a small scale um, from a potting plant in your window to a pickle bucket on your porch. Um, and then you can scale up from there, but just showing people that it's possible has really encouraged a lot of people to, to get growing. And that's what we're trying to see for people yeah. to be able to sustain themselves. That, that was, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that was one of the, one question that I did want to ask is, you know, do you see as you are, you know, engaging in putting together these, you know, sort of BIPOC communities of gardens, um, that you're also attracting, um, you know, new people into, um, into agriculture, farming, gardening, um, that, you know, may not have been, uh, accustomed to it or maybe exposed to it prior to, um, you know, seeing these gardens that are offering, um, you know, not only are they being, you know, planted by uh, people in BIPOC communities, but also um, growing things that are, you know, important to those individual community diets. Absolutely. I see a lot of people um, in our communities are, you know, maybe they're just removed from gardening or farming a little bit. Um, from just a couple generations, you know, my grandmothers on both sides had wonderful victory gardens. They called them back in the in the forties and fifties. But they were basically during World War II a way that Americans could feel like they were supporting America by being self sufficient. And that's you know some of the mindset that we're reclaiming is that uh, self sufficiency. And then also people get to taste the difference. And I think mm. it brings older folks back to their, you know, their childhood memories of how vegetables used to taste. And then younger folks, you know, really, you know, young people are really sensory beings. They, they see, they smell, they touch, they taste, um, they hear. And all those little influences will, you know, go to shape the adults that they become. So having early influences in a positive way and not looking at being a farmer as dirty or poor work, looking at it as an opportunity to reconnect with the soil, the land, and to provide for your family as well. So, and you do see a lot of people engage, especially at that garden at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Alan Centennial as well. People, you know, take food that they need um, and people taste things. You see families engaging at the garden at the Capitol during um, Saturdays. We have a really big farmer's market downtown. So you'll see families engaging at the um, at that garden, unlike any of the other ornamental gardens. You know, kids right. will walk by and right at their height they can see little tomatoes growing, little eggplants. You know, they're you know looking to identify uh, okra has a, a very beautiful flower, and that attracts people. And then they you know some people uh, recognize that there's okra growing. Other people are like, what is that growing? But it sparks those conversations. And it sparks that curiosity. And again, it shows in a landscape that traditionally was very, you know, there was farmers here in Wisconsin. Um, corn was grown, um, a lot of, you know, very agricultural state pre-colonial times. So it's kind of where corn wants to be. But right. people are seeing like in that, you know, white marble landscape of the state capital with the ornamental gardens, 
that food has a place there to grow um, as well. Do you see? Do you see that it sparks conversation um, between generations and between you know uh, people, um, you know, uh, in the BIPOC community, outside of the BIPOC community? Do you, do you? Is it a conversation starter? Um, in in some way that might, you know, even almost encourage maybe conversations that might be uncomfortable but necessary about, you know, slavery and land access and, uh, you know, colonialism and those things. Um, we try to keep it pretty simple and just, you know, the language that we're allowed to use and the QR code is kind of, you know, it's got to be copacetic with all of the groups involved. So mm-hmm. we just try to keep uh, think keep it simple with like a brief history of the garden and then the types of plants growing there, and that you know, and links to the organizations that are involved. So that's like the message that that garden says. But mm-hmm. it definitely, um, and more important to your question, it definitely is a conversation starter. I've like been up there just tending to the garden, and you'll have people stop by, and they'll just. Hey, what are you doing? What are you growing? Um, like, oh, these are beautiful, you know, and start talking about that. You see um, entire family families interacting with the garden in ways that you don't see. At one point, there was people worried if the um, if the garden would detract from customers at the farmers market, and mm. a lot of the vendors at the farmers market, you know, came to uh, the garden's defense and said it actually brings. You know, because people can see the vegetables on the table, but they don't see them growing in the dirt. And that's a little bit of a disconnect, even for a lot of people. They don't know where their food comes from. Right. So it's an educational piece for everybody. Um, and even it is, though we focus primarily on BIPOC vegetables that we grow there, um, you know, a lot of the vegetables of the diaspora are European in origin. Mm-hmm. But we, it's just stuff that we've utilized and incorporated into into our diets, but the focus of that being a BIPOC garden doesn't detract from it being welcoming to everyone. It's an right. educational right. space for everyone. It's definitely something I, I would really hope to have a chance to uh, to visit um, when I'm back in Wisconsin, and, and I've, I've been there a few times, um, and Madison is, is a really incredible place. You know, obviously it is the state capital, but it is also home to University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, and uh, you uh, have another hat there, um, and as uh, I believe a chef for um, uh, some of the dining halls at the university, um, and if I'm not mistaken, you also taught a class, is that right? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of uh, educational outreach as part of what Trade Roots does as well. Um, so I work for the university. I've worked full-time for the university um, for housing for 15 years, but um, in total for 22 years. So long time cooking for the UW. But I've always had, you know, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and had side mm-hmm. hustles in fine dining. Um, now my number one side hustle is agriculture, um, outreach, education, um, cooking demos and pop-ups. But for instance, last night we did uh, a dinner with UW Slow Food and we did a Black History oh, Month cool. Slow Food dinner. Mm-hmm. And we had about 120 students pay and it's a pay what you can. And it's like, it's basically from zero to $5. 
um, if you can pay that. But then uh, the meal was uh, we sourced fish from like Red Cliff. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with Red Cliff. Yeah. Indigenous. Yeah. So the tribal fishery. Yeah. We were able to yeah. source white fish from the tribal fishery there. We got hand harvested wild rice from Dan Cornelius from Yoela Farm. Awesome. An indigenous farm here in Dane County. And um, so we were able to really feed people a delicious Afro-Indigenous meal for a price that they could afford. And then also there was a large teaching component. So on Sunday mm -hmm. we prepped all the ingredients and then on Monday we cooked the dinner together. And so um, there's a lot of volunteers that came together to make that wonderful meal happen. And Slow Food UW does a wonderful job on a shoestring for feeding the kids um, and feeding the community. And it's and, the, and again, that's a community meal open to everyone. But yeah, we do teach classes, you know, like pretty much a couple times a month I'll teach a class. And I usually try to have some sort of cooking aspect to it. So I taught cooking demonstrations at the PBS Garden Expo a couple weeks ago. Oh, cool. And that was uh, that was a really really nice to see a big crowd there, especially after we've been through the pandemic and um, it was yeah. canceled for a couple of years. But yeah, so the educational outreach is an essential component, you know, and it kind of harkens back to what is um, you know what is our role as a chef, and um, does it go beyond just cooking food in the kitchen? Um, and I think that the answer to that question is uh, most definitely yes. It, it is most definitely yes. Food tells a story um, and food holds a, a lot of history that is, is sometimes um, inaccessible um, it, otherwise, which, I, which is why I'm so fascinated by, by food and by agriculture, because it, I think, is singularly unique in the way that it, it captures and preserves you know, entire cultural identities. And it's uh, really wonderful to, to hear about the work that you're doing um, and that Trade Roots is doing. Um, before I let you go, I have to ask, what what's next? What's next for, for you and for the work that you're doing in this space and with Trade Roots? So this year, exciting uh, developments for Trade Roots is a new partnership with Dan Cornelius of Uela Farms. That's in Stoughton, Wisconsin. And that's... Uh, uh, Dan is a Oneida farmer, and he has one of the only indigenous farms in Dane County. And then um, legendary black farmer Robert Pierce from Neighborhood Food Solutions and the Southside Farmers Market. He's been farming in Madison longer than any other farmer that I know, and he's been a mentor to me and to so many other young black farmers coming up and um, trying to learn the agriculture game. So we, uh, we're we partnering on the first Afro-Indigenous CSA box, and it's the first Afro-Indigenous CSA box in the country as far as black farmers and Native American farmers partnering together to create a nutritious box that will uh, serve both of our communities and, and the overlap there. And also... Um, our CSA box will be distributed for, for free. Oh, wow. That's, that is, I, I love a good CSA. Yeah. We've gotten funding to produce a nutritious and delicious, uh, food box and get it out to the people. So I'm really excited for this opportunity 
yeah, then we'll just be doing a lot of pop-ups, pushing out, you know, further um, in the urban agricultural landscape of Madison, trying to get more garden beds in and create more of an edible landscape. We'll be planting some trees this year, pawpaw this year. Oh, great. Pawpaw is the official fruit of Ohio. Is it really? <laughs> Just a little like, yeah. We, we, I think we made it the official fruit of Ohio in 2009. Have you had it before? I have. You like it? I do. <laughs> it's good. It's like, you know, yeah. it's unique. It's, a unique it's, surpri- it's surprising. It's not what you would expect. Mm-mm. So we'll have, you know, pawpaws growing in a few years. We do have pawpaws in Wisconsin, but people are kind of stingy with their pawpaw fruit. So <laughs> that's a well, thing. They got to they gotta hold on to the good stuff. In a few years, we'll have uh, more pawpaw trees and people will be able to, uh, you know, there'll be more access. So that's the thing is increasing access to healthy foods um, and finding those ways that we can bring that to the people um, that can't otherwise get it. Yeah. Increasing access to food, educating the public, encouraging inclusiveness. Um, it, you know, who can argue with any of that? It's in, it's incredible work that you do. Uh, Yusuf Benrella, thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.